everyone. It's the Drive to School podcast. I'm Pastor Goodman and uh, my good friend, the apologist, David Sills. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Enjoying my coffee as usual. It always helps me get going. Sometimes I'm wide awake and I still like the coffee because, uh, you know, I just like the taste. Maybe I'm weird, but I like the taste. I already don't understand wide awake. I'm not going to lie to you, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just... Well, uh, I got I got decent sleep last night, so I guess I'm thankful uh-huh. for that. Uh-huh. Well, there you go. Uh-huh. All right. Well, I won't rub it in. I won't rub it in. Sorry. It's all good. All right. So uh, we have been talking a lot about the resurrection. This is this is one of those facts on which uh, the faith really does stand or fall. Uh, Paul says, if, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are a people above all to be pitied. So we've been talking about the empty tomb. I think we're going to wrap that up today, right? Yeah. So we've been focusing on, we had a couple episodes talking about the resurrection appearances, the fact that Jesus was crucified and the crucifixion killed him. That's important. If it didn't, then he can't rise unless he's dead to begin with. And then we talked about the fact that after he was dead on the cross, people interacted with him alive. And we talked about there's good historical evidence and scholars are agreed that these experiences that the disciples and Paul, who was an enemy until his experience of Jesus converted him, these, these, these people were convinced that they had experienced these things. And so then the question is, were these subjective, you know, things that their brains concocted that were illusions or were they part of reality? Was Jesus really there alive? And we've made the case that when you look at the, what we know from psychology, there's no, there's nothing that we have that's a parallel to the kinds of hallucinations that would have had to have been involved. And so at the end of the day, the hallucination theory is just as much of a stretch as saying someone rose from the dead, but Jesus rising from the dead makes way more sense in the context of everything else we know about Jesus, like his claims to be God and his miracles, fulfilled prophecies, that kind of thing. Um, but there's more to it because um, if Jesus, if people had, ex- if Jews, especially devout Jews had experiences of Jesus alive, but his body were still around his dead body, that it would have been very un-Jewish to believe that he rose from the dead. And so you also have to have a missing body. And so this is the other piece. And we've talked about the minimal facts approach where Mike Lacona and Gary Habermas try to base their case for the resurrection only on facts that um, are the minimal facts, which means two things. One, the evidence is really good. And number two, the con- scholarly consensus cutting across Christian skeptics, lots of worldviews, the majority of scholars have agreed that, yeah, the evidence is so strong that this is real. And so the empty tomb um, sometimes makes the list of the minimal facts, sometimes not. Um, In the Mike Lacona's book, which I think was an expansion of his PhD dissertation, he chooses not to put it in the minimal facts because he says there are a lot of scholars that believe that the tomb was empty, but he said the people who believe it tend to be Christians and the people who don't believe it tend to be non-Christians. And so it's hard to tell if there's bias operating on either case. Sometimes people say Christians are biased, but non-Christians are just as biased in many cases. In fact, when you read Mike Lacona's book, he says that there are some people who admit, I am committed to a non-supernatural explanation of what happened to Jesus. So, So they have this bias that they bring in that then they have to interpret the data a certain way. And so when the empty tomb is kind of, he says, the belief in Jesus empty tomb is split among partisan lines, meaning what you already believe shapes what you believe about the empty tomb, or it's correlated with it in some sense. It's harder to say is bias 
influencing the Christians, this is influencing the non-Christians, and so you can't make the same appeal to scholarly consensus. But what you can do is you can point to the evidence and let people decide from themselves for themselves. So um, the evidence for the empty tomb, I think, is fairly strong. Historically, there are four lines of evidence that point to it. Um, one is if you look at the, res the empty tomb narratives in the four Gospels, they're actually very different. Mm -hmm. And that is evidence for their reliability. So some people will make the case, you know, these things contradict each other, therefore they're not credible. But if you look carefully, most of the contradictions are not inherently contradictions. You know, maybe it says there's one angel, maybe there's two. Well, if there's one angel, there could have been also a second one, but the writer was only focusing on the first. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that really made this sink into me was when I read about actual detectives who are used to dealing with eyewitness testimony. And they said, you know, we expect eyewitnesses to disagree on peripheral details and agree on the main thing if they're re reliable. And so this was something that was counterintuitive to me. But um, I've talked about Jay Warner Wallace, um, Jim Wallace. He says in his book that he quickly learned that it's important to separate witnesses in order to get their raw, unfiltered unpolished testimony. He says, if you let the witnesses talk and then you interview them, you'll get roughly the same, the same story from everybody. And you might miss things that they would have told you before they harmonize their accounts among each other. And sometimes those things you miss could be critical in deciding the case. And so he said he'd rather separate the witnesses and have very different stories about peripherals. And he said, he could always go back and reconcile the differences on the peripherals of the story by knowing something about the witness's perspective. But the key is that there, that there are differences on the peripherals and harmony on the main facts. And um, going back even longer, Simon Greenleaf was a professor of law at Harvard, and he wrote one of the leading textbooks on evidence, you know, just, just how to be a good lawyer. And he also wrote another book called The Testimony of the Evangelists. And he said, let's apply the rules we would use in a court of law when evaluating witnesses to the four gospels and see how they stand up. And he said, the fact that the four gospel writers are different on the peripherals, but harmonious on the main thing is something that's in their favor. And so this is something where rather than being... Um, Rather than showing that they're not reliable, it actually shows that these are independent accounts, and therefore, when multiple people report the same core event independently, it it argues in favor that that main event actually occurred. And so that's the first evidence for the empty tomb is that the discover the Sunday morning narratives in the four gospels are independent, and so they're multiply attesting the same event, and so that increases our confidence that if multiple people are witnessing the same thing independently, that it really happened. Um, but there are three additional facts that support the reality of the empty tomb. One, which we've already talked about, is that the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb, and in some case of Jesus' resurrection appearances, are women. And we've talked about how in ancient Jewish society, the testimony of women was not treated very well. It wasn't regarded particularly trustworthy. 
Um, and so there would have been no reason for the gospel writers to invent this if they were just trying to make a good story that people would believe. The only reason they would say this is that they were constrained by the facts, and this is what really happened. Um, and then two additional things. One is um, the fact that Christianity started in Jerusalem. We have multiple sources that say this, both in the Bible, Luke says it in Acts, Paul says it in his letters. We have Christian sources outside the Bible that talk about a strong Christian presence in Jerusalem. And we have non-Christian sources that say Christianity started in the vicinity of Jerusalem, in particular Tacitus, the Roman historian, who said a most mischievous superstition broke out in Judea after Jesus' crucifixion, referring to Christianity. But the interesting thing is, how could Christianity start in Jerusalem if the tomb was still occupied? Because Christianity centered on three things, the death, the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Those are the three mm -hmm. pillars of early apostolic preaching. And you can't have people believing the resurrection if there's a body still there. And so the fact that Christianity thrived in Jerusalem shows that, that the tomb had to have been empty because if not, no one would have believed it. And even if people had, the Jewish authorities would have been more than willing to correct them by pointing to the facts. Um, and the fourth evidence is what the authorities really did do. They didn't dispute the empty tomb. What they actually did was try to explain it differently. Matthew gives us a glimpse of this in his gospel where he says that, you know, there's this guard guarding the tomb. Jesus still walks out because of the angel and then the guard goes to the Jewish authorities and says, tells them what happened. And now they're they're in trouble because they basically right. fell asleep on duty and let, let something happen that shouldn't have happened. And so their lives are on the line. And the Jews say, well, just spread the story that the disciples stole the body. And if this report gets to the governor, we will basically pay him a bribe so that you guys could live. And then Matthew says something interesting. He says, this story has been circulated to this day, meaning his listeners would have been like, oh, that's why everybody's claiming that mm -hmm. the disciples stole the body. So there was this story circulating that the disciples had stolen the body. And this was the rebuttal to the resurrection. And just Justin Martyr, a later Christian thinker, reports that this theory was still popular. And then Tertullian, another church father, reports about this story. And so the interesting thing is you don't say the body was stolen unless there's a missing body to explain. And so the dispute was not over the tomb. It was about what happened to the body. Why is it missing? And so this is an implicit acknowledgement by the Jewish authorities that the, the tomb was empty. And so you put all these facts together. And I think the strength, it strengthens the case that, yeah, the tomb really was empty. So that's a fact. Then we have to say, how do we explain the fact? Right. It's it's worthwhile even too noting that skepticism wasn't invented along with the iPhone. Um that <laughs> like that I mean that that they're they're already trying to come up with alternative explanations even while um the 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 first century is going on even even while uh the the same powers that be are are trying to control it it's because people who heard there was a guy who died and stopped being dead they weren't just sort of inclined to believe it even back then um and that also means that when they look at the the eastern narratives and see different accounts across the the uh, synoptics 
you're not the first one to sort of recognize that one mentions more than one angel and one doesn't. People have been wrestling with this for for a couple thousand years now. That that uh, this skepticism has been not only around but also being uh, it's it's been addressed over and over again this whole time. Yeah, that's something that's been interesting as I've been doing my reading is to realize that a lot of the arguments that are used in support of Christianity today have been used for literally hundreds of years because. You know, what does it say in Ecclesiastes? There is nothing new under the sun. Right. A lot of these same skeptical arguments have been around for a long time. And so the encouraging thing is that that means people have thought about these things. And if there are still smart Christians around, that must mean that there are good answers to these things. Mm. Um, so, yeah, let's look and see how have people tried to explain the empty tomb. And mm. one theory that has been popular is that the disciples stole it. It was popular in the first century. And I think I read it was popular again in the 18th century when the Enlightenment and reason were very popular. Um, the interesting thing is nobody, no, no scholars really take the conspiracy theory seriously. We've talked about why it doesn't work. Right. You know, two factors. One, the fact that there are embarrassing details in the Eastern narratives, the fact that the women are the first witnesses, the men don't believe at first, all these things that would have been embarrassing that you don't make up if you're trying to make a compelling story. Right. But more importantly, the fact that they were willing to suffer and die for their message, you know, if they were, if they claimed to know that they had witnessed Jesus alive as firsthand experience, they would have known it was a lie and, and who would die for a lie knowing it's a lie. And so the conspiracy theory doesn't work. It's not really taken seriously. Second theory um, is the that Jesus didn't really die. So we've addressed this one already in our discussion of the crucifixion, the idea that Jesus revived in the tomb. He never was fully dead. And so he managed to get out of the tomb and see his disciples and his disciples were like, oh, you conquered death. But that doesn't make sense. The rebuttal to this goes back to 1879. Mm -hmm. Again, there's nothing new on the, the sun. And so back in 1879, a guy named, his last name was Strauss, said, this doesn't make sense. If you have a guy who's like on the verge of death, who's barely alive, who manages to escape crucifixion in a tomb, he's not going to convince people that he's defeated death and therefore they should be brave in the You're face look of like death. like trash, yeah. Yeah, it's, he's going to be like, oh, we should get you medical attention. And yeah, we're still scared of Rome because now they're going to crucify you again and us with you. So, I mean, it doesn't work. And so th this is the second theory, which is the apparent death theory or the, mm -hmm. the swoon theory, it's called sometimes. It doesn't work either. And then William Lane Craig in his book, Reasonable Faith, says there are two additional theories, one that the disciples went to or the women went to the wrong tomb, another that Joseph of Arimathea put Jesus' body in his personal tomb first, but later moved it to um, a mass grave afterward before, and the women didn't know that. These theories really don't work um, for a number of reasons, but especially because it would have been easy to correct this if the, these mistakes had been made because people could have said this is the actual body of Jesus in an actual tomb and so he's not risen. Um, and William Lane Craig says scholars don't take these theories seriously either. And so it's interesting. William Lane Craig says there are really four explanations for the empty tomb and no scholars take any of them seriously. So what do scholars do? How do they explain it? And according to William Lane Craig, at least, he says, 
it's a it's a history historical mystery scholars don't know what to do with it it's just you know lost to the past and so i think we should get into this maybe in a future episode but this is kind of where you get when you're explaining the historical facts about jesus you really have three options you can either go down the conspiracy theory lane where you say maybe the disciples stole the body or maybe Jesus didn't actually die. But all these conspiracy theories get stretched so thin. They're just a stretch because the facts don't really support them. Um, third, the second option is you can say, well, we just don't have enough information. We'll never know. It's, it's lost to history and to be agnostic. Um, and, and this is kind of where historians are with the empty tomb. Mm -hmm. And the third option is to say, well, the new Testament was right about Jesus. Um, and so the facts really do constrain what you can believe rationally about Jesus. And I think the most reasonable explanation is that Jesus is the son of God and he rose from the dead. Not only do we have an empty tomb, not only do we have resurrection appearances, not only do we have the claims of Jesus and the character of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus, we have this all together in a single person. And so if Jesus is God, it makes it more plausible that he would rise from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, it makes it more plausible that he was more than just a man. You put all these things together, they strengthen the case, and the accumulation of evidence can really tip the needle in favor of the fact that, yeah, as a matter of historical record, the New Testament was right about Jesus. We don't have to accept it on blind faith. We can test it with history, and it really withstands scrutiny. That's awesome. Yeah, well, amen. <laughs> Thanks, David. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll see. We'll let the the listeners poke holes in it if they if they have questions. I like that. Do it politely, please. No, no naughty words. Everybody have a great day. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Thanks for listening. Take care.